TED Audio Collective. I'm Dan Price, and I'm the CEO of Gravity Payments. You may have heard Dan Price's name before. Dan, what would you say that you are best known for? Ooh, well, I think what I'm probably best known for is in 2015, I stood in front of my company and I announced that we were going to institute a $70,000 living wage for everybody that worked at the company. Effective immediately, we're going to put a scaled policy into place. Everyone in here will definitely be making $70,000 a year. And I'm super excited about that. You, on the other hand, were getting a pretty big pay cut, right? Yeah, that's true, because um, I was making a million dollars a year at the time, which sounds kind of silly, probably because it is silly. (laughs) Does a million-dollar salary for a CEO sound silly to you? Or does that sound kind of normal? And maybe what seems silly is that a CEO would give that up so that everyone who worked for him got a big raise. Of the 120, 130 employees that were there at the time, that meant about a third of them were getting their pay doubled all in one day. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. And let's just put that number in perspective. $70,000. That's actually more than what most households earn. The median income in the U.S. is about $60,000. On the other end of the spectrum, $70,000 is the price of a Model S Tesla, or the amount that the Walton family, owners of Walmart, have made since you started listening to this podcast. They make $70,000 a minute. Big CEO salaries and wealth disparity are hot topics right now. And no wonder. Since 1978, the average worker's salary has gone up by only 12 percent. The average CEO's salary? It's gone up by over 1,000 percent. And it begs the question, how do we get back to what a lot of people think is the American way, a place where capitalism can provide for everyone? It's hard to remember, but as one recent New Yorker article put it, by the 1970s, America was as equal as any of the Scandinavian countries are today. So on this episode, how Dan Price kind of decided to make his own mini Scandinavian country at his company, Gravity Payments. It's after a quick break. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This is ZigZag. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. 
And when I first heard about Dan Price and his $70,000 announcement to his staff, I thought that maybe it was a stunt. I mean, what a great way to get a bunch of publicity for a little credit card processing company in Seattle. How did you come to this idea? This is a risk that's worth taking, and so I just did it. Out of 120 employees, 70 will get raises, with 30 doubling their salaries. Why'd you decide to do this, Sam? I see this income inequality gap just growing and growing and growing, and so I, I felt like this was a, maybe a bold step, but a necessary step to, to try to correct that. Do you see an uptick in the applicants, essentially? We've just been overwhelmed by emotion, to be honest with you. This has been a big thing. It's about making a difference. So we decided to do this. In the four years since then, the media frenzy has died down. Dan had to deal with being sued by his brother. The lawsuit was dismissed. And he had to run his company prove his experiment could be good for the bottom line, not just an inspirational headline. And I think for Dan, after talking to him for a long time, proving it could work was part of the fun. I mean, this is a guy who started his business before he could vote. I grew up in Idaho in a conservative Christian family. I'm the fourth of six kids. I was a homeschooler. I grew up playing rock music and was in a band and we played with all these various venues, and I always just got along with the the business owners really well. I just loved them. I thought they were so cool. And, and honestly, I still don't know why, um, but I was drawn to them. And there was this one particular business owner named Heather. She owned a coffee shop in Caldwell, Idaho called Moxie Java. And we used to play acoustic unplugged shows there on Friday nights. Nice. And she was complaining to me about her credit card processing And I started basically doing, I would go to somebody like Heather or somebody she would introduce me to, Mm -hmm. and they would complain about their payments processing company taking advantage of them. And I would offer to basically call up the company and argue with them on the phone. And before I knew it, I had a small kind of independent practice where I was just helping these different businesses with their payment processing without having any product or anything. And then I used that money and that customer base and that feedback and knowledge to build what became Gravity Payments a couple years later. So, I mean, it sounds like very early on it was very clear that you had the entrepreneurial spirit. Like you weren't like, I'm going to go be a doctor or I'm going to work my way up at a law firm. I think I just – I grew up really early. What do you mean? And, well – I was like ready to, I loved working, for instance. So like um, Mm -hmm. I got a job as a lifeguard as soon as I was of age in Idaho, which was like 15 or 16. And then I got a job as a busboy at Outback Steakhouse and I loved being a busboy. And then I started doing like prep cooking early in the morning to make more money. I just wanted to be working. My family was going through a lot of financial struggles at the time, Uh like my parents were. But I really loved it, you know? So, like, yeah, I needed the money, but I think I loved it enough that even if it weren't for the money, I still would have wanted to do it. Mm. So you're working your tail off. Yeah. How does that happen that you become actually a business owner? I was a freshman in college, and I originally started the business with my older brother, Lucas. And so he was doing, like, a lot of the office, in-office type work, and I was going out and interacting with customers or potential customers. 
I did a lot of walking in at that time. So I would pick a neighborhood in Seattle, like Queen Anne, where I lived, and I would just walk up the street and I'd walk into every single business and introduce myself and leave behind like a card or a letter or something like that. And then I would walk down the other way. And a typical like morning for me would be, oh, I walked into 20 businesses and I was able to talk to three business owners. And of the three, two told me to to go scram and get a life. But one of them like had a conversation with me mm. and they didn't say yes or anything, but I have a open door to come back another time. And what was it that you were offering to them that that one person sort of understood was valuable? Well, you know, payment processing is inexplicably opaque and it's bad for kind of the little galler guy, small business owner. Basically, what I was saying was, I'm not one of those people that's going to mistreat you, take advantage of you, mislead you, lie to you, or just kind of like represent a company that would do those things. And so I was essentially offering, I'm going to give you good service for this. Basically, it's kind of like utility, you know, for your listeners out there, like a business owner needs payment processing service the same way you need your internet service or Mm. something like that. And so you buy it similarly, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners have had their internet service, you know, the price goes up without telling them. And payment processing is like that, but even worse for independent businesses. So basically what I was saying is, you know, you can trust me, I'm going to give you the most fair deal that I can working in a system that is just completely set up to be unfair to you. Hmm. And even though it's a bad system that hurts you, I'm going to be honest about it and I'm going to do the best I can for you. So I pretty much started working, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day my freshman year of school. I think we like converted maybe like 100 or 120 new clients to our business over the summer. Wow. So pretty much every second of every day was spoken for. And it just evolved to where it became like a business with like employees. I remember reading this book that suggested that I create an organizational chart that showed every single function that was happening, but create it like it was a big like 100 person organization and just put my name everywhere. (laughs) And then... (laughs) The book didn't, this was my idea, but I basically said, which of these positions can I hire somebody else to do? Yeah. And how much does it pay? And I feel embarrassed about this now for obvious reasons, but I just would hire whichever positions paid the least amount. No, that makes sense. I get it. Yeah. So it was like, oh, you know, at that time, like administrative assistant was kind of like, or like somebody to do like filing and whatnot was like a very inexpensive position to hire, you know, it was $10 an hour, $9 an hour, $8 an hour. So, you know, I ended up getting to a place where I started hiring people and just one by one trying to fill in this organizational chart with human beings not named Dan Price. (laughs) The way I would summarize that whole period of time between like 2003, 2004 to 2008 was we would get to like two or 3,000 a month in profitability, and then we would hire somebody uh-huh. and go to zero. Yeah. And then we would get, 
We'd work our way back over the course of a month or two to two or $3,000 a month in profitability. And then we'd hire somebody and we'd go to zero. And maybe the next time it would take six months. So we'd have to wait six months to hire the next person. But we would always go back to zero. I know like my adult 35-year-old Dan doesn't feel like that stable, but it felt stable at the time because one, I was very naive. I'd never been through any type of crisis. Mm. And number two, I was just doing stuff that I really loved. Like my day was getting up and demonstrating that I could be trusted to these independent business owners that I idolized. I mean, I just loved being around them. I loved working with them. They were quirky. They were weird. You know, they didn't have the best like business hygiene. They would say things and do things that are really not cool, but they just had this kind of independent, I'm going to do it spirit about them. A lot of my clients were immigrants. A lot of my clients, you know, English was not their first language and they spoke with a thick accent. And so even though we weren't making any money, I really felt like all my dreams had come true and I felt like it was a very stable position to be in. I bet they really respected your hustle too. Yeah. Well, it was like 2006. Oh my goodness. This is wonderful. 2007. Wow. This is cool. I could do this forever. I don't even care about making money as much as just like working with these businesses. We were making some, but not much. And then 2008 hit and it was like, ooh, that is a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Of course, 2008, the recession hit. Dan's customers were making fewer sales, which meant Dan's company was making less money, a lot less money, to the point that Gravity Payments would be out of business within seven months. So, real quick, Dan started taking a continuing ed class in how to run, or more like save, your small business. They say that however many people you think you need to lay off to get back to break even, the technique that they were teaching is lay off twice that many. So, in my case, I think we had 35 people, and I would have needed to lay off, you know, like 12 of them. Wow, you had that many people working for you? Yeah. Whoa. Oh, this is the other thing that made it tough. I had just been on the cover of like the Seattle Times business section and the (laughs) Seattle PI, which was like a major paper at the time. And Seattle Business Monthly had done this, you know, glossy profile of me, like, you know, as this like business genius kind of guy at like 22. And the headlines like, you know, at 22, he heads the largest, you know, payments company in Washington State. And then I'm faced with the fact that I actually have a totally defunct business and people are telling me that I can only survive if I lay off 12 people that help me get there. Oh, God. So did you do it? Well, I just thought that was terrible. And I lost a lot of sleep over it. And I basically got to this place where I called the whole company together And I said, I'd rather, you know, go down swinging. And we all agreed as a group that we would just try to keep expenses flat and see if we could grow our way out of it. And it took us five months to where we got back to break even. So we were... We were two months shy of completely going under. Ooh, skin of your teeth. Yeah. It was a difficult experience, but, you know, this is the weird part. 
it was so much fun. Like, <laughs> even though there was a lot of pressure and everything, uh-huh. we were just like, we were going to do it our way. We were going to do it all together. I realized that a lot of companies, they set out to like start doing something good or doing something they care about. And then they get into a situation like this and they become like the other companies out there. And so this was our opportunity to prove that that was not going to be the case for us. The other thing that happened that I haven't talked about was like, right before that, I'd had a VC firm offer me $3 million. And they're the top VC firm in Seattle. They're called Madrona and they're based downtown. I turned down this money and that was like a big thing too, but it was... Did you tell your employees that you turned down this money that would have secured their jobs, at least in the short term? Well, that was before the crisis hit. Oh, right. Okay, got it. (laughs) So, yeah, I kept that one to myself. I I bet you did. I bet you did. And, uh, you know, after the recession and that crisis and the way that affected me personally, it was deeply wounding to me in a way that I don't Mm. think I understood at the time. So I felt very proud of how we handled it, but I also felt extremely scared. And I was always kind of looking over my shoulder after that. I was just a paranoid person, even more so than I had been previously. Okay, we got to take a quick break. But how that paranoia manifested into what Dan thinks was a lack of ethics on his part and how he thinks he rectify it. It's in just a minute. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. This is Zigzag. And where were we? Ah, yes. Paranoia. Dan Price, the CEO of Gravity Payments, had built his business on a bedrock of anxiety, worried that at any moment, it could all fall apart. I would lay at bed at night and imagine having 35 people, some of whom have families, some of whom don't have anywhere to turn in terms of they don't have families, losing their job. Mm. At that time, we probably had a couple thousand small business clients, and I would just imagine all these promises that I'd made to those small business clients evaporating. So I was scared, and that's really how we started making money. We instituted... Fear, yeah. So it was like, you know, I came up with this thing. Okay, since we lost 20% of our revenue, we always need to make 20% profit or more. And I got so hung up on that 20% number, and I would, like, talk about how frugal we were, and I would talk about how important that was to the ethos of the company. But what that meant for the employees was they couldn't make enough money to actually, like, pay their bills, And so I was thinking, oh, we're all doing this together to protect all of us together. But yet, you know, the way it affected people that I worked with was they just can't make it. It was a a really emotionally difficult time for me. Do you think that they were like thinking like Dan's great and all, but at the end of the day, he's cutting costs so that he can make our bottom line look like we're like killing it financially so he can sell the company and be a bajillionaire and get out of here and start another company? Because that's what people do, at least here in New York and Silicon Valley. Like that's how people build their businesses with the idea of how do we get out of this eventually with lots of dough. You know – I never intended to sell my company. If I had, I definitely would have taken the VC money. 
I think it was more like, hey, Dan is so concerned about protecting the institution of the company. Mm. He's placing that over my health and well-being. I can't live my day-to-day life because Dan wants to protect this institution. And if the institution is doing that much harm, what's the point in protecting it? Dan says that because of his greed or fear or whatever stuff, no one at Gravity Payments got a raise between 2008 to 2011. So for three years, and people were becoming more and more disgruntled. Dan realized he needed to listen just as hard to his employees as he usually did to his customers. So it became like a company goal to have a 15% raise for everybody. Why do you think people stayed, Dan? Like, was the job market, had it not rebounded? Why did they even bother? Like, if they're not getting raises and, like, they think that (laughs) you're stingy, why stay? I don't know. I mean, I've asked some of those people that question because they're still here today. And, uh, you know, their answers boggle my mind. But it really was like a feeling of we're all in this together, Hmm. but we also need to let our voices be heard. So in 2012, we actually hit 20% pay raise on average. And we were setting a goal to also decrease our profit margin. So our purpose was to redistribute the wealth of the company on an ongoing basis. And so The goal was to have the profit go down, but it didn't. It went up. This happened a couple of times. The company would decrease its profit margins to give everyone, including Dan, a 15% raise. And then the company's profits would go up. The company would do better. Everyone was making a bit more money. Dan even finally took a vacation to Europe. And so we thought, well... We got to set this expectation that we can only do this one more time because if we do it twice, people are going to expect it and we'll we'll go under for sure. So I called everyone together for another meeting and said, we're going to try it again in 2013, but I promise you we'll never be able to do it again. Mm -hmm. We again exceeded the goal of 15% in 2013 and our profit went up again. So we did it again in 2014. And at the end of 2014... One of the employees at Gravity, her name's Carrie. She's been here a really long time. She wasn't in a management position, but she offered to basically go around and talk to people about their compensation. And at that time, we probably had around, maybe around 100 or 110 employees at the end of 2014. Hmm. And of the 100, I want to say all but four said they were satisfied or extremely satisfied with their compensation, which is, I mean, you go to any business in the world, you could go to a business that's paying everybody a million dollars a year, and you'd have more than four out of 100 be dissatisfied with their compensation, right? <laughs> right. So it was just kind of unheard of. Now, the trip got cut down from like 10 days to six because I had work stuff, but I still got to go to Europe for six days. I mean, I grew up in rural Idaho. It's like a dream come true. I'm making money. The people at the company are making money and seem like happy with what they're making. Our clients like us. And I decided to, in the spring of 2015, take some enjoyment from my success. And I didn't come into work one day and I decided to go hiking with my friend Valerie in the Cascades here. There's great hiking around Seattle. So we go on this hiking trip and she starts to explain to me how 
a $200 rent increase is like destroying her life. Hmm. And her and I used to date. I used to be in love with her. We were just friends at this time, you know, but we had a very significant relationship. Hmm. And it was like she was a really important, is a really important person in my life. She had served in the army for 11 years, two tours in Iraq. You know, she'd seen things that hopefully none of us ever have to see and really been dedicated. Come back, she's working, you know, 50 hours a week. She's got a side hustle and a main job and everything, and she still can't do it. And I was, I just got really angry. Keep in mind, I'm making a million dollars a year here. Yeah, a million dollars. With all the 15% raises over the previous couple of years, Dan's salary had gone up, just like his employees. But 15% of a six-figure salary is a heck of a lot more than 15% of a $30,000 salary. It suddenly occurred to Dan that this raise was barely registering for him. But 15% more salary for an employee making $30,000 was a really big deal. And so I decided on this hike that the money wasn't really helping me. I was really angry. And what was really critical was that Valerie was making more than probably about a third of the people that worked at Gravity. Oh, wow. So that hit it home. Yeah. And I was just so naive because I'd let myself get so out of the reality. You know, I'd become like a financially like this elitist plutocrat type thing. Some of my friends were wealthy, but not all of them were. But they didn't make it their business to tell me like what it was like to live in Seattle in 2015 on thirty or $40,000 a year. And certainly my employees weren't telling me that at the time because, you know, they were feeling like, oh, that we got a good thing going and I might not be making as much as I want to now, but I there's a path in front of me where I can that other people are taking and it works and... But Dan, I don't know, you founded the company. You took one vacation over 12 years. You nurtured this thing. Part of me thinks, yes, you deserve to be paid a million dollars a year. Yeah, I mean, so here's the secret, I think, to my why I view this differently than other people. It's not so much that I care about others more than like your typical CEO out there. I think I just care about money less. Hmm. Which is weird because I told you earlier, like, oh, I was so money motivated and stuff, but I was money motivated because there was a need. There was like something that I needed. And then I got to a place where I didn't need anything. And then the money was about greed and having more. And that was not a cool place to be. And it's like, I just found like a hollow spot where it's like, I'm not going to sit here and compare my net worth with Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates the rest of my life. Like, that does not sound fun at all. It's just not cool. I think that what people don't realize who have never hit this threshold of, like, having plenty is the value of the money above a certain point. You're going from being able to go on vacation and fly somewhere to now you have a slightly bigger seat to now there are no other people around when you're flying. (laughs) Right. And it's not really that much better. Like, I have enough money. I have Bose headphones that I put them on, and I have, like, an eye mask. You know what I mean? So, like, the fact that there's other people around (laughs) isn't really that big of a deal. 
And if you don't need to fly private jets or have like mansions or mansions all over the place, I mean, the rate of return like for a retirement account or something is like about 5%, which compensates for inflation. So if you have like, say, a million dollars or $2 million or $3 million when you retire, you can make $100,000 a year off of that or $150,000 a year off. Or you can semi-retire with a million and then have like another like $50,000 that you make because you're working and then you're making $100,000. And those amounts are kind of like enough. Now, if you have a family, maybe hopefully you have two incomes or whatnot, but I could see somebody being like, okay, now I really need to make $150,000 or $200,000. There's some number and it changes depending on who you where you are and what your responsibilities are. But there's some number where when you hit it, the money over that just doesn't make your life much better. Mm. And I hit that at a very young age with very few attachments and responsibilities. And it was like, I'm feeling like this sense of emptiness inside, this meaninglessness. And so that's kind of like the ground that's cultivated inside of me when I run into this situation with Valerie is I've kind of figured out that I'm going to be okay financially Mm -hmm. and making myself more okay financially would be a really bad way to spend my life. So soon after that fateful hike with Valerie, Dan gathered his staff together one morning, stood at the front of the room and told everyone they were going to get paid a livable salary. What I felt in that moment was a little bit of a, a nervous disconnection where I was sharing this with everybody, but I think what I was sharing was seen by other people as so preposterous that I wasn't getting the typical like eye contact head nodding that I normally do. (laughs) So I actually announced it and no one really said much. And from my perspective, from their perspective, like I didn't get it out. And then I just like announced it again. And then like somebody stood up and started like screaming and clapping and then everybody else stood up and started screaming and clapping. And then I felt very relieved. I felt happy, but even more than happy, I just felt relieved. Like, oh, they they understand what I'm saying. Like we're on the same page. Maybe they didn't realize like what a big deal it was. Like I almost feel like you could have been like Oprah, like, and you get seventy thousand dollars and you get seventy thousand dollars and you get seventy thousand dollars. <laughs> Honestly I should have. Um, And it wasn't that I was being humble or didn't realize what a big deal it was. I really realized what a big deal it was. I did. You know, it's also weird because I didn't think at that time it would be a moment that you would be asking me about in 2019. Oh, interesting. Because I was going to ask you that. I was going to say, did people think it was a stunt? Zero chance. No. Okay. So it's not that I didn't think people would be interested. I just never anticipated the magnitude or like how fast news like that spread. But the funny part is that I misremembered the Angus Deaton and Daniel Kahneman study, uh-huh. the Princeton study, where they found that $75,000 was the dollar amount above which more money does not really improve your well being. And then afterwards, everyone's like, hey, Dan, you know, 75000 not seventy. What are you doing? And even. <laughs> There was a a CBS show called The Good Wife, Uh and uh, Miss America, Vanessa Williams, played me on The Good Wife one season. (laughs) 
Yeah, and she was like on the show, and she did it, but she did $75,000. She got it right. I have something to discuss. Have I done something wrong? No, no, no. It's about your business, and and actually it is a bit serious. I think I know what it's about. The salary floor. Yes. It's communism, right? No. Socialism? No. Well, yes. It is a bit. I like my employees. They work hard, so I decide to give them all a raise. $75,000 for everybody. Yeah, that's my money. Why is that bad? Now, the other thing that was difficult, though, about the story going big and the thing that was difficult about going on, like, one of my favorite TV shows, The Daily Show, and having Trevor Noah say, like, oh, you should have come down from the mountain before you decided on 70K. (laughs) And, like, having Vanessa Williams play me on TV and stuff is, it's kind of a lot of pressure because now I'm like, oh, shoot, before I thought I just needed to, like, run this company with these people and stuff, but now I'm taking up a lot of oxygen from the conversation. And... I grew up conservative Christian, Republican in Idaho, so I have, like, a very, like, kind of capitalist background. But hang on, hang on, hang on. Surely you see that the reason why you got so much attention for it was, well, A, it's a good story, first of all. But second of all, it's something that this country needs to talk about, considering the extreme disparity between CEO pay and employees. And so what do Americans like? They like a good story. It makes them connect with a problem. It's why when Valerie told you her problem on that hike, it all clicked for you, too. So surely you see that We needed someone like you to sort of wake people up to this idea of changing how we reduce that gap between CEOs and employees. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. You know, on my good days, people tell me, hey, Dan, I got a raise because of you or I quit my job because of you and I'm doing better. Or, you know, on my really good days, Megan Driscoll from Boston, Pharmalogica, or many of these other entrepreneurs call me and tell me that they did the same thing. She doubled her employees' pay, and one of them told me that she moved from a rat-infested basement to a two-bedroom apartment. Like, those are the good days. But the bad days are when I look at the statistics Mm. and the trends. And I really thought in 2015 that we were done with that. We were going to either stabilize or change directions. You mean as a nation? Yeah. And the fact that we have just kind of accelerated the problem over the last four years. And the way it works is kind of they incentivize the top executives. The reason why Bob Iger made $60 million is because they want the company being run in a ruthless way that works for the shareholders. And that's how the board wants it run. That's how Carl Icahn you know, the famous investor, if he bought a company like mine, he would just gut it like crazy. You know, that's a dirty job. And most people would not want to do that job. And the way they do that is with huge, huge compensation packages for executives that align the executives to that system and structure. So it's basically like, hey, why don't you just gut this and pull everything that you can out of it And if you do, we'll give you a huge portion of what you take out as a ransom. And if you don't, we'll just find somebody else to do it. 
it's a real, real long shot to figure out how to stop it. I think actually you put your finger on something, which was right at the beginning when you described how you were seeking out your clients. And you said you didn't really know what it was, but there was something about the way that these small quirky business owners, they were a little weird. You had a criteria that, like, you measured their success in some unidentifiable. Dan Price's measure for success is they're a little bit weird. They (laughs) want to provide for their families. And that's kind of that. There has to be a culture shift where it has to be, like, I don't know, like, if you have too much money that it's almost shameful in some way. Like, I don't know. How do we measure it differently? I've been racking my brain on this for a long time, and I haven't figured out the solution yet. Obviously, there could be a political solution, but it seems like there's a lot of forces and money that are very focused on making sure that that gate is blocked. The other thing that I've been thinking about is, could I spend time and find people to spend time trying to convince talented 20 or 25-year-olds to have a specific criteria that I will not work at a company that does not abide by these values. It's not so much about doing good. There's a lot of companies out there doing good. It's more about not doing so much harm (laughs) because I think these companies are just doing so, so much harm and then doing a little bit of good and highlighting the good to kind of like you forget the harm. But if we could get 20 or 25-year-olds to say no more, then I think that the companies as a competitive necessity would have to adapt to that because you have to have those talented 20, 25, 30-year-olds. Maybe like you get in there early and just convince somebody Mm. at some age that's convincible that like, hey, if our business is even a little bit taking something that doesn't belong to us, public resources, the environment, climate, and turning that into money and putting it in our pockets, like I just will not work at that business. Mm -hmm. The good news about today is that things change quickly. I mean, who could have imagined Donald Trump becoming president not that long ago? So, you know, the change is, is faster than ever. And maybe there could be this pendulum swing, but like, I think what it always comes back to to me because of my kind of entrepreneurial, conservative, Christian, Idaho roots is like, well, what am I going to do about it, Mm. right? I guess I'm surprised that you attribute that to your conservative religious roots. I think that part of America is now associated with, unfortunately, politics that are quite destructive and— that's just not the – what we see now is not the American way. What you just described is very much what I envision the American way to be. Yeah, and I, I do have to say those are my roots, but today I'm surrounded by a huge amount of diversity. One of my proudest moments this year was we had our leadership retreat, and there's a person at Gravity who has like a non-binary approach to their gender. And – There's another person at Gravity who is conservative Christian, been a minister on and off his whole life. And we did an exercise where we did really good introductions for each other. And Mm. and he did their introduction. And it was beautiful and stunning and wonderful. That's awesome. And I thought in that moment, if we can do this, like if we all 
not we gravity, but like we all, if we can do this, then we can start to make progress together. Dan, listen, thank you so much. Really, really yeah. appreciate it. Hey, really fun chatting. And uh, please give my best to Jen. And I, I'm, I'm rooting for you too. And just love what you're doing and love the independent spirit. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Are you recording? Yes, I'm recording. Can you talk for me? All right, Dan Price, everybody. And now it's Manoush here in the studio. (laughs) We're getting there. The sweat box is what I'm going to call it um, with my co-founder, Jen Poyant. Jen, there's no ventilation. We're both like really, really sweaty right now. But you know what? We're proud because this is (laughs) our freaking sweat box. What do you think of Dan Price? I think he's an interesting dude. He's an interesting dude, for sure. Do you think what he did for his company is something that you would like to replicate? Yes, but. Okay. I can see how it took him several years to get there before he could do it. Yes. So, like, what I'm saying is, yes, but maybe three or four years down the road when when we know we can do it. Or when we think we can try, at least. I mean, I guess the question is, he has a lot of employees, and I know so many companies that actually don't have any employees. It's all about contractors kind of working together and almost creating their own network of mini companies. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'll give you an example. Matt Boynton, our audio engineer, started his own company. It's called Ultraviolet. And so Stable Genius contracts Ultraviolet. And Same thing with the other audio engineers we work with, David Herman and Dan DeZula. Yes, exactly. They all have their own little mini companies. And so maybe that's something that happens more in creative industries. I'm not sure. But was there a moment in the growth of Dan Price's company that resonated with you in particular? Well, I mean, he tells this story, right, about him going off hiking. He's finally experienced some success, and he's talking with his ex-girlfriend, and he realizes— that she's struggling because of this $200 rent increase. And then he realizes that he's paying some of his employees half that much. And, uh, you know, that's that sort of thing. Obviously, if you're running a business and you have people that you're working with, it it just makes you wonder. You got to ask yourself, like, whether or not anybody you're working with might be going through the same thing. I think we've been pretty clear and careful and open with uh, with the people that we work with to make sure that, like, they're making a wage that they feel is fair. Or um, not even a wage, but a daily rate. Yeah. I would say also his the youth that he was coming to that conversation with how much to pay people. If you're 25 years old and like you work all the time, uh, you probably don't need a ton of money. But like as you know, we we have kids, Mm -hmm. we have mortgages, we have like I think we're. I hope that that makes us more attuned to what and we live in a very expensive city. So we're more, I think, attuned to what people can live on. But we've actually, we haven't talked about this, but we have been accused of paying people too Too much. much. I had a meeting (laughs) with our accountant recently, and he looked at me and said, why are you paying the people you work with this much money? And I said, because they're valuable and we care about them. And that's, I'm reluctant to have this conversation about the people we work with without them here. For sure. Absolutely. Let's not do that. Because they might be like, you know, but- 
I think, I think there's a fine line, though, right? Like, you get what you pay for. Yeah. But also, it's what the market will bear in some ways as well, right? right? Like, I'm new at all this. I'm not—I don't know how it works to incentivize people or, you know, you and I always talk about that Mad Men clip where she's— <laughs> where Peggy. Peggy. Yeah. Peggy's saying to, like, the hot guy that, like, she— She's like, you never say thank you. And, and he's, he's like— that's, That's what, what the, the money's for. for. Exactly. And so, like, we know that it's not just the money. The money doesn't take care of everything. You want to feel like you're growing professionally. You want to feel – you want all kinds of things. Right. We're at a very particular point, and this is why I said yes, but earlier, mm. where we're working with a very small crew of people, and they're all contractors, and we've all contracted a specific – amount of money each week or each day for the work that they're doing for a certain amount of hours. It's all very like above board, I think. Um, And we've been really clear that our needs are pretty specific. And so there's a fine line between creative fulfillment for some of those jobs and really us hiring for exactly the type of work that we need to get done. So am I having conversations as a manager with these these uh, workers to make sure they're creatively fulfilled? No, not right now. No. But are they getting paid well for what they're doing? I think so. Yeah. I think they think so. I mean, I'll have another conversation with them. After, after this episode. <laughs> well, that and, and like, you know, we should check in once every six months yeah. on something like that. That was one thing that he mentioned was that he his employees, which we don't technically have employees, they went years without a raise. And I thought, oh, God, right. we're not thinking about that. Like, we're not right now budgeting in a 15% raise for— 15%? That's very high. Well, he had mentioned it in the context of several years where people hadn't right. gotten it, right? There are some people who, like, you know, if there's a tough market for talent— you need to be able to lure them with a competitive offer. Right. Having said that, I've also read about other executives that have gone to his company in part because they recognize that they they want to be part of this new kind of culture. Right. So that's appealing to them in a way that it's not about the money, it's about something else. Which makes sense. So then he created a company and a company culture according to his values and attracted people that had the same values. I think that's awesome. I would love to do that one day. What did you think about his thoughts about spreading his message and and talking to CEOs and trying to get them to literally put their money where their mouth was in terms of being more equitable. I mean, I thought it was fascinating that he thinks he's failed. Yeah. I would argue that he has not because if he's doing it and he does hear from other CEOs every once in a while that are doing it, that's slow change. That's sustainable. And he is impacting the lives of both his employees and the other businesses that he's working with and maybe he's just like ahead of the curve a little bit i don't know like i don't i just don't see it as a failure necessarily i think Mm -hmm. it's admirable and perhaps corporate culture will change going forward i don't know it was interesting i I mean we're thinking about it sure yeah yeah and i was kind of googling around about him just to see what some people were saying and there were a couple like kind of snarky things like that he's a showboat and thought leadery and all those things and i kind of feel like who cares yeah what's wrong with that i mean if i don't even mind about his motivation like i don't i just was i'm glad he's doing it it's an important conversation to have so yeah and most ceos are showboats (laughs) part of their deal Okay, listeners, we're kind of in the midst of a mini-series, I guess. Mm-hmm. Does that, Jen? About how people are defining success. Dan is a very specific example. Like, it's a money number for success, which is kind of cool. Go back and listen to the last episode if you haven't yet, because it's about listeners, you, 
uh, grappling with this issue. And it, we kind of did a little survey, a little data analysis on how people are deciding to measure success in their work and in their lives. And it's pretty fascinating stuff about, again, like you said, like where this conversation is going. Right. Can I tell you what's going to happen next week? Please. I'm super psyched. Catherine Zaleski is a nutcase. She is awesome. <laughs> she was like this high-powered media executive in her 20s and then had a specific incident that made her, well, she became a mother. And within six weeks, she like gave up that entire business, gave up her entire career to start a new business about women. But it's not like, oh, we would need more women to, you know, yes, that's all laudable and everything. But she's she has a really interesting perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I also share a very personal story that I actually had an incident with Catherine seven years ago that she then wrote about, and we both get a chance to reflect on that incident, which was weird. I can't wait to reflect with you on that incident, too. (laughs) It's going to be good. So if you have thoughts on Dan Price and $70,000, or you listen to that other episode and have ideas about how you're measuring success or changing how you're measuring success or have specific metrics, we want to hear it all. Please record a voice memo or just email us at zigzag at stable G. That is zigzag at stable G, S-T-A-B-L-E-G dot com. Also, please make sure you're signed up for the newsletter that we send out every other Thursday. It has the beautiful artwork that we commission for these episodes, if you haven't seen it. Also, links to all the things that we talk about in the episodes. Like, for example, I'm not going to tell you what's in it. Just go look. You can sign up for that on our website stableg.com or just email us we'll sign you up too if you want let's go this episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio is our engineer and sound designer David Herman is our composer many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering too the Stable Genius team includes Maria Wartell and Marcy Thompson Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. Oh, did you want to say something? You liked, yeah. Please share the episode. Share the episode. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi. I'm Jen Poyant. And thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I have to tell you one thing, though, before, yeah. before you let me go. The people that I work with, they, for six months behind my back, were having all these meetings and schemes and everything. And I didn't know about it. And I walked into our quarterly meeting, and at the end, someone came up and said, it was Alyssa O'Neill, she works in our customer service department. She said, Dan, we got a present for you, and we need to walk you out to the parking lot. And I think... I don't know if this is coincidence, but it was a present that had cost roughly $70,000. <laughs> what was it? They bought me my dream car, a brand new Tesla Model S. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. Did you cry? Are you kidding me? No. Yeah, but I got accused of alligator tears, so that was kind of a negative. I, 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 my tear ducts were uh, misfiring, but I was, I was crying like crazy, but there weren't a lot of tears running down my cheeks. It was, it was weird. Sounds like you were stunned. Just like- I cry because I'm sad usually, so I, I, apparently it's different when you cry when you're happy. <laughs> it sounds like how people felt like when you told them that they were all going to get raises, like kind of- like yeah too much stunned